What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney This episode dives deep on creativity, creating great work and overcoming self-doubt with Emmy-nominated director and producer Brian McGinn. Brian directed, wrote and produced the critically acclaimed Netflix documentary Amanda Knox. He also executive produces and directs the Emmy-nominated Netflix documentary series, Chef's Table, which he developed for TV with his partner, David Gelb. Brian David and Jason Sturman went on to found Supper Club, which is an independent production company, with its latest project being the hit show on Netflix called Street Food. Get ready for a jam-packed episode. Hey guys, it's Sean, and I have a very exciting announcement for you. In a few weeks, there will be some other people behind this microphone guest hosting the show. They will be the brothers behind He Too Super Coffee. For the longtime listeners, you guys are familiar with them. The DeSicos actually were on episode 53. You guys can submit your questions to them and actually win some incredible prizes, both from Super Coffee and also MCT Bar. If you guys want to submit your questions, feel free to shoot us an email, info at whatgotyouthere.com, or you can tweet at us, hit us up on Instagram, whatgotyouthere.podcast, or at drinksuperco. I'm very excited for these guys to grab the microphone. So if you have questions, please send them in and get a chance to win some awesome prizes. Making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand, they're MCT Co. And they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high-quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great-tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor. Head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. Brian, something I'm always intrigued by is is how you start your day. And do you have any tactics or strategies, things that just get you off on the right foot? It's a good question. I So I uh, this is actually a big battle in my life. I am constantly fighting myself to get up earlier. I have been one of those people that, I don't know if you do this, but I'm constantly reading about other people's routines and then going like, Oh man, I don't get up at 4:30 in the morning. <laughs> and then I'm like, what if I did get up at 4:30 in the morning? Would that change everything in my life? So I've constantly been kind of one of those people that bounces back and forth. Um the main thing that I do is I try to get some time before my day starts to actually get some of my own creative work done. Um if I don't start by 8 a.m. doing my stuff. It means by the time I start working on other shows or more producing work, it it means by like 10 in the morning, my day is kind of shot in terms of it's really hard to then go back into creative work. So I try to force myself the first couple hours of the day to get to make some progress on personal creative work so that uh, I actually get something accomplished. Because that's that's what I found is like the most frustrating thing. When is when you're 
doing a lot of creative work, but it doesn't feel like you're pushing forward like your personal pet projects, or it just feels like you're accomplishing a lot of producerial work, but your stuff falls through the cracks. And so I've really kind of adjusted my whole life to make sure that I get time to do that. Can you expand on that? Yeah. So, I mean, I can talk to you even about like the realization I had. So this is sort of one of those weird things. Like I feel so lucky that I've been able to get to a place where I'm stable in this bizarre, weird business, entertainment business. And so it almost feels sacrilegious to ever express any dissatisfaction with where you're at when you're actually getting to make stuff that other people like, that you like making, that that makes it feel like what you're doing is worthwhile to you. But this has happened to me a few times where I've just realized, like, especially in television, a lot of making projects come to life is facilitating and people management and a lot of stuff that doesn't necessarily get categorized as creative work when in in kind of the original description of it when you when you're when you're a teenager like I was going like I want to work in the film business I want to direct movies for me that was cuz I saw Apocalypse Now and Memento it wasn't cuz I went oh man it must be great to memento and get to people manage the 200 people that it took to make that movie. But that is, of course, part of what that job is. And so for me, that it's always been this kind of push and pull where I really love working with people and being able to, to, uh, to like work as a team and lead a team. And all those things are super exciting to me. And I spend a lot of time trying to figure out how I can get better at that stuff. Um, but I've constantly over the years found myself going like, oh man, is this what I want to be doing? And I think my that's the question that I think has been the key to my progression over the years is constantly from when I wasn't making anything, when I was designing websites to pay my bills, to now where I'm making a bunch of different shows and a lot of the things that I wanted to do, I'm now doing. The question that I constantly come back to is, am I doing what I want to do? And if not, what can I do to change my approach or my attitude? So even relatively recently, I just started a production company with my partner on Chef's Table, David, and one of my producers from Amanda Knox, Jason. And one of the things that I was realizing was, I love all these shows that we're making, but I'm not giving myself time to come up with you know, the next movie I want to do or the dream project that I want to put put forward or push forward. So I started carving out hours of the day where instead of being in meetings for our shows, we would schedule those at different time and I would have a little bit of time to push my own stuff forward. So that's all part of this constant process of going like, are you actually doing what you want? You know? That constant push and pull, that question, am I doing what I want to do? It's so intriguing to me. And, and is that something that more recently, you've started to ask yourself, maybe as you've started to develop more success and accomplishments, or is that something that's always really been in the back of your mind? I think it's something that I've always asked myself from the very beginning. When I was 24 and wanted to quit what I was doing, to, to quit pursuing this kind of job, the question that I sat down, that I asked myself was like, well, what do you want to do then? 
And so I sat down and kind of made a list of things that I was interested in. And that pointed me right back to doing what I, you know, to this world that I'm in now. So all and all along the way, I've kind of always asked myself, like, are you doing what you want to do? And then if not, how do you how do you change that? Why did it come to the moment that you asked yourself if you even wanted to quit? Um, why did it come to that moment? Because I think a lot of times you don't, uh, you don't realize how you're feeling until it gets to an extreme place. A lot of times you're just, you're, you're just pushing forward without thinking about that. And then sometimes you get to a moment where you are forced to step back and think big picture. And that's when you kind of ask those questions to yourself. I'm really fascinated by the creative process, and I would love to dive deeper on yours. You mentioned carving out those hours specifically. So during those hours, what actually are you doing? I think it, it depends. It depends day to day on what project I'm trying to get accomplished. So a lot of what Jason and I do day to day is we're trying to come up with ideas for shows or writing out treatments for shows, or I'm developing a couple of scripted things with my friends and writing those scripts. So I'll be reading a script or I'll be thinking, what, uh, what is the next episode of the show look like? What is the overall arc of the series look like? So it, it'll depend on what project I'm trying to focus on, but mainly it, I would say the key to it is just removing distractions. Jason, my, my partner in supper club, he stays up till three in the morning because he, he, he realized that basically between one and three, no one emails him. Right. And so for me, uh, my time when I can actually get stuff done is in the morning before everyone gets to work and starts, you know, the, and the questions and the emails start going. So it's not so much that there's a rigid structure in the same way that, you know, a lot of writers get up at five in the morning and they write from five thirty to seven thirty. Um, it's much more project dependent day to day, but it's, it's more of just avoiding distractions. When you're mentioning trying to come up with a new show idea with Jason, are you guys just sitting in a room? I'm, I'm so fascinated by this because I'm trying to see what you do creatively that can translate to some of my creative projects. So I'm always intrigued about different things people do, even if it's just hanging out and talking for a few hours. Yeah. I mean, I think that one of the things that and I mean, maybe this will get into a little bit of the origin of why we started our own company. But one of the things that I love about my two partners is that we're all, we all kind of think about things in the same way. And yet we all have different levels of what I would say, we were talking about this the other day, the idea of people that say yes to everything, people that say no to everything, and then people in the middle. And we're sort of our, <laughs> the way that we work is, each of us at any moment, we kind of, we play the devil's advocate. So someone will sit in a room and we'll go like, I think this is the show. And then another one of us will go, no, I don't really think that's true. And that doesn't necessarily mean that that person really firmly believes like that is not a show. What they're, what we're trying to do is we're trying to poke holes in it and see, is it actually good? And I think that process is the thing that is universal on everything that I've ever done is we try to create an environment of questioning why everything, why is this a good idea? <laughs> why is this edit good? Why does this scene make the most sense it can make in a chef's table episode? What could help it 
be even clearer? What could give it more of a point? And so it's that process of, it's almost a, um, in a weird way, it sounds combative or negative, but it's really much more of, it's trying to, it's trying to ask difficult questions as early as possible. Because if you get, if you're doing anything creative and you don't ask difficult questions early, someone else is going to ask you much more difficult questions later when, when you've done a lot of work and you are screwed at that point. You're going to have to like back up and start over or figure out some like shitty solution. And so what we try to do is ask ourselves difficult questions as early as possible, whether that means the beginning when we're coming up with a show, whether that means at the first possible moment in an edit, we all get in a room well before any network sees it and watch it and, and rip it apart in a productive way, like not in a negative way again. Um, and all of that is because if you don't identify those soft, weak problem areas early, you someone else will identify them later and then you'll be in real trouble. So I think that's kind of been the key to the step that, that we've done that has worked, has been really being hard on each other early. And, but it's really hard to do. It's not like a natural thing for people to do, to, to go like, why do you think that's a good idea? Like not in that tone of voice, obviously, but that idea is not natural to anyone. So you kind of have to force it. Uh, but that's, that's, I think the best explanation of it. What I love about this is so easy to think about, but like you just mentioned, much harder to implement. And I'm even wondering about the space you were talking about creating so how do you make your partners feel comfortable? Say Jason comes up with an idea and you obviously want to poke holes in it, but how don't you poke so many holes in it that he completely questions it? Maybe it is a really good idea. And because of the questions you guys are asking, he decides just to throw it away. Yeah. Um, that's a good question. I think that's an ongoing, that's like, that's like a life question. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. I think that's something that, that is always, just trying to, and that's something that's part of like trying to develop a culture too. That is something that we're in the midst of trying to figure out. Um, how do you make everything productive? Um, I've read a lot about how Pixar uh, worked and or works, and this is somewhat similar to their process, though obviously it's such a different medium and so different in many ways. But uh, I think one of the things that you do is you have to separate the pers the emotion, the personal emotion from the idea and that's hard and it's something that i'm still uh, getting used to but if you can remove your own personal feelings of like oh this is my idea right <laughs> then it's like it's not so hard when someone goes like is it good because you're because you're not thinking of it as your child or something that you're putting part of yourself forward to judge it um but it's hard i mean we're still constantly like each of us have put forward ideas and then gone like, ah, oh, maybe it's not good, you know, because, because of that. But that's just part of the process. And I think that uh, I would rather have that happen and risk a show or two that was good not get through than the opposite, where tons of stuff gets going that is terrible. And then you haven't identified any issues to solve early. So I think, I think it's really a trade off that you just have to, you have to be. You have to be okay with that. And then I'm sure that 10 years from now, if you ask me that question, 
there will actually be a real answer on how you <laughs> change that, but we haven't figured it out entirely yet. How many years have you guys been working together? Um, well, I've been working with David since before Chef's Table now, so that's six years I've been working with David now. It's around this time, 2013. And I've been working with Jason since 20, early 2016. So between three and five years. And we just started the company two years ago. Yeah, you mentioned the origin story of Supper Club. I'd love if you dive into that a little bit. Sure. So um, basically, David and I started Chef's Table in 2013. And it took a little while to sell that show. But we started making that in 2015. 14, it came out in 2015. And then I had been making a feature film about the Amanda Knox case, which is this big, big trial in Italy that was covered a ton in the media all over the world and became very, um, people really took sides, you know, like a lot of people thought she was guilty. A lot of people thought she was innocent. Um, and so I've been working on that story and that film on the side while we were developing chef's table since maybe gosh, since 2011, um, and then in the process of finishing that film, we, we ended up making, selling it to Netflix and making it for them. Um, just like chef's table. So in that process, I met Jason who at the time was running an entertainment company that also has some of the, the top, um, graphic artists and, um, title sequence makers and, um, editors and so i met jason at that point when we were doing our title sequence and graphics for amanda knox and we got along really well immediately and then david and i had always been trying to figure out we wanted to do more stuff beyond chef's table and we we were always looking for you know who's our partner going to be so um so that's that was really how the three of us came together and then we, we each of us have these weird backgrounds where you know, prior to Chef's Table, I'd come from the comedy universe a little bit. Jason had started his career working for 10 years for Tony and Ridley Scott. Um, and, of course, David had made Jiro Dreams of Sushi. And so we have these kind of this variety of interests where now uh, Jason worked on his executive producer on 13th, the Eva DuVernay documentary, and Five Came Back, which was another Netflix series. Um about the five Hollywood directors who made films for the U S government during world war two. Um, and, you know, worked on a bunch of other projects. And so he had this really interesting background in scripted stuff. And then also in really, um, powerful documentary material, uh, David coming from the food world, then he partnered with me and I had, and so the two of us had this food documentary background. And then I also had this comedy, background and the true crime stuff and so between the three of us we kind of run the gamut from <laughs> you know all sorts of different genres and interests and that was a really exciting thing for us and the other thing that was exciting for us was we saw a lot of documentary companies where either there was one filmmaker or one creative who was the head and then a number of people you know kind of lower on the hierarchy or um you know that just operated in a different way. And so we thought, what if you could have three creatives that also understand producing? Um, but you know, what if you could lead with that kind of filmmaker creative friendly point of view and build a business model around that? And so that, that was the initial premise. And I think, um, 
you know, we've, we've tried to then take our creative interests and that kind of business idea and blend the two of them together. It reminds me of a concept from Scott Adams, the guy who created Dilbert, and it's his mm-hmm. skill stacking where it's very difficult to be the best in the world at something. But if you're in the top 10% across three different domains, and it seems like you guys are the culmination of that, <laughs> I'm always trying to figure out for myself when looking for a potential partner in a new business or creative adventure. So I, I want to know what about them specifically? Obviously, they're wickedly talented. But what else did you see in them that you wanted to start this business with? I think that each of us saw a really strong desire to uphold quality standards. Um, and we also have temperaments that ma- that mesh with each other. So by that, I mean, I think it's really important that you, when you form a partnership, that you don't have people that do the same exact same thing so that there's clarity on like where people, where people's domains are (laughs) and, and where their specialties are. But then also on top of that, that there's a feeling that everyone is contributing and pulling their weight. So, which is actually like a much more difficult thing to, to figure out than it seems on the surface. So, um, I think those were the things that that right away clicked for the three of us. Um, was we we saw that we we each have the same quality standards for our own work and for others, and then um, we also got along. And so, if you have the, and and we kind of understood how to work with each other and not step on each other's toes. And so, those are the things that were immediately appealing um, in a in a way that. We hadn't really felt that with a lot of the other people that we had you know, always talked to about partnering with. Say I, I was asking them the question about you and your skills. You mentioned you started in comedy. What specifically, though, do you think you really bring to the table? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I think I've become a real, uh, I've become really interested in structure, um, storytelling structure. And I, 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 I think I've become better and better at asking the simple questions that are actually the important questions that need to get answered. So I'll answer this sort of by, in a in a weird way, this is also about like the development as a creative person is I feel like I used to be, I used to be very focused on just aesthetic or just a vibe or a tone. And the more stuff I've made, <laughs> uh, the more now I just go, what is it about? What is this story of? As simple as possible. Um, and what I found working with other people is that that point of view is super important. Um, and so I would like to think that, and I don't know, you have to ask David or Jason, but like, I'd, I'd like to think that that's the thing that I try to that I try to do is through all of my manic energy and waffling all over the place and all sorts of stuff, <laughs> you know, that, that goes into like making anything that I try to focus on asking the simple basic questions that are really important, that I think are really important for making good stuff. So like what story are you telling? Is it there? Does it make sense to the audience? Which like sound like very basic questions, but bizarrely, I don't think I ever asked those when I was t- between 22 and 
27, which sounds crazy. Like those are the formative years where you're developing and making stuff and like doing your hundreds of hours of labor to try to figure things out. I don't think I ever asked myself those questions until I started doing a higher volume of long form work, but then it started becoming clear that those are the things that actually mattered. Uh, and that's now the stuff that I think I bring to the table and, and, and hopefully, uh, hopefully that's true. And then occasionally I can be fun to work with, but probably not all. The- <laughs> it's so, <laughs> it's so funny. Cause this is so similar to, to things that have come to be for me in my life. And, and I'm curious if, yeah. it, if it is those, those hundreds and thousands of hours we're putting in, in our, our mid to late twenties. And then all of a sudden it just clicks for us at a later date. Uh, do you think that's what it was? Yeah, the weird thing is, I feel like we could have figured it out much quicker. <laughs> like, if you read any book on anything like this or any successful company, from the Pix- from like Pixar to just listen to Ira Glass talk for ten minutes about creativity, he, they're all saying this stuff. But for some reason, it doesn't it doesn't land until you've done enough of it yourself. So, yeah, I guess it's that. I also think it's, um. I would I would also say that in addition to spending the time making stuff, that spending a lot of time watching other people's stuff at various stages of work was actually the key for me. So what I mean by that is I've still only directed maybe 50 hours of stuff, maybe. Uh, there's a lot of hours that go into making that stuff, but um, but I've spent so much time watching other people's work as an editor or as a producer in various stages and and that is where i've learned the most because that's where you're out of your own emotional <laughs> state of like analyzing your own work we talked earlier about the idea of being separating your work from your personal feelings uh about your 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 work and yourself and looking at other people's work really does help you do that. And then if you can apply that perspective back to your own work, that is where I think you get to that kind of clarity. How methodical are you while watching others? Are you just sitting back and appreciating the art form or are you being very methodical, sitting there writing notes, thinking it through from your own perspectives? What does that look like? I write a lot of notes, um, but mainly it's because my memory, I have bad memory, so I won't remember anything unless I write it down. Uh, and then we'll all be searching through a cut for trying to find something that I'm talking about. Yeah, I'm writing a lot of clarity notes. Like, I don't understand this. Or if if uh, a lot of times it'll kind of be, you can tell something is a, supposed to be a big emotional thing, but I'm not feeling it yet. And it's like, okay, so that's a good note because it's it's not specific saying there's a solution <laughs> that I can tell you, that I can dictate to you, but it's a good note because it it's you're saying there's something here that I can tell that we're supposed to be feeling, but we're not quite feeling it. So what is the solution for that? Like, that's always a helpful way of thinking about it. So I, that's how I approach, um, that process. I, am not very good at, uh, watching and enjoying things. Uh, uh, at least when it's like producing work, I can, I can sort of turn it off if I'm going to the theater or something like that. But, uh, no, it's not so easy when you're sitting in a room where you're producing or editing for someone else, it's not easy to turn that off. What's the most masterful thing you've watched recently? The most masterful thing I've watched recently. I just rewatched There'll Be Blood. Uh, 
it's so good. It's so good that, uh, yeah, I, I would say that's, that's my answer to that. What about it? Um, I think the craft of it, uh, I really appreciate, I've become really into craft sort of alongside store structure, story structure and all those things. And there's something about a, a movie of that scope and scale where you don't notice the mechanisms <laughs> that, that are working underneath it. That's like, that's really satisfying. Uh, and just performances are amazing. It looks, it looks incredible. The story is so involving. Um, and it's, it's kind of like a completely, it's like a complete, uh, it's a complete movie, which is so, I'm so jealous of anyone that can <laughs> do that and not, and not still show the, to show the work, you know, like, I think that's the thing that's so awesome about someone that's totally mastered their craft is you don't even notice the work that got, that went into it. And I love watching something like that and then going like, Oh man, that must've been unbelievably hard, but you don't even notice it. That's so cool. I hope you're able to throw humility entirely out the window right now. So I feel like with watching any of your work, I mean, I'm like a true fan of your stuff and I watch chef's table and I'm just obsessed with it. The whole oh, experience. Nice. And so you just mentioned mechanisms, and I feel like I am missing so many mechanisms. But from your perspective, why just the average viewer of Chef's Table? Why do I love it so much? Well, first of all, thank you for saying that. That's very nice, very kind of you. Um, we never thought anyone was going to watch it. So <laughs> it's very cool for us still that anyone <laughs> likes it and responds to it. Um, I always think so. This is sort of an it's something that we haven't talked a lot about, but I think the reason why people connect with it is it isn't really about um, food at all. It's about, and one of the purposes for making the show that was subconscious at the time, but I, but I think uh, does is obvious to me now was that we started making this when I was 28, David was 29 and we we're trying to find answers for how do you find a sustainable life in an unsustainable job um, or when there's no structure to or rhyme or reason to how things happen in that job, how long you'll survive, when you'll be good and when you'll be bad. <laughs> like, how do you figure out how to do that? And that was a question we were asking ourselves um, about our own work and so what we became really interested in when we were talking to these chefs is how they accomplish that. And so just right there, like the question that we're going in with is much more what drives you, what sustains you, what lessons have you learned? And so that's, I think, why hopefully why people connect to it is that ideally they're, they're taking away some message from some lesson from each episode that is applicable universally to their life, whether or not they have the same life experience as the chef. There's something, there's something universal that you can take away from every successful person. It's like why it's so great to listen to, you know, fresh air or WTF or any of these shows that are great interview shows that, you know, hopefully you take away something from those shows that you can apply back to yourself and your way of looking at the world. So that's, I, I would hope why people connect to it. And then I think the other thing that I've heard just a lot is that people like coming home from work and turning it on and just watching it in the background because it's calming. <laughs> and so 
that just is a, it's an, that's a nice uh, reminder that like not everyone is taking it at, at the, <laughs> at the intensity level that I'm just talking about. And that some people are just going, the world is chaos. A lot of the time, it's nice to have something that is about how people succeed and how people overcome obstacles. And that's just something that we all like, uh, to see, you know, that's like the base. There's a reason why that kind of, why the hero's journey structure (laughs) has sustained for this long, you know, despite its flaws. It's so funny. You mentioned how calming it is. It, It really is. It's almost like a piece of art on the wall because of how beautifully well it's shot and you can almost just enjoy it. But it, it, I'm really intrigued about what you were mentioning, the own question you guys had, creating that sustainable life in an unstable job. And maybe that's why I enjoy it so much because I'm in a different type of career path than most people. And I look for those people that are doing something different and pursuing something. Yeah. So for you personally, I mean, does that come down to self-belief? Because you're kind of carving your own path as well. Yeah. Self-belief is a weird thing, though, because it's not always conscious. Um, I think it's just good to be reminded that every more than self-belief, I think it's good to be reminded how much everyone has (laughs) self-doubt. So I would actually reverse that and go, there's something about how every successful person um, had intensely long periods and, and often, often continuing into the present and the, and will have forever, uh, doubt in their own abilities, questioning their decisions, all of those, you know, wondering what the right direction is. So all of those things, understanding how those things apply to everyone. I think that's, that's almost where self-belief comes from is understanding how universal doubt failure and and all that stuff is and then understanding that resilience is the path through those things and not giving up so like that sounds super hokey but i i think that's one of the things that uh has been important for me i mean there's there's like the the thing that i always tell anyone any like college kid that that writes me or something like that is to go watch the the, the, these four videos that Ira Glass did about storytelling and he talks about the gap between I'm sure you've seen these the gap between um, your taste when you start out in any creative field and your abilities so like when you start you have really good taste but you're really fucking bad at doing stuff (laughs) (laughs) and uh, and like all the work you put in is about narrowing the gap between your taste and your abilities and he plays clips from early in his career and you go, oh my God, you know, like this guy who is a master of his form and, you know, one of the great storytellers of all time it was terrible at some point and doubted himself. And that is such an empowering thing um, to know. And so that was something that got me through a lot of my 20s when like I wasn't getting opportunities when i wasn't making stuff that i was proud of it was or when i was doing stuff and then abandoning it because it wasn't as good as i wanted it to be it's like oh wait a minute this guy who has made it has done all of these amazing things he had a period of where he wasn't there yet and and that just like chips away at i think there's a cultural perception of like um 
young genius or that talented people are fully formed out of the womb, um, which is such a load of crap. And um, the more you can chip away at that idea in your own head at comparing yourself to where other people are at saying, um, uh, you know, getting rid of all those kind of um, pervasive, terrible ideas about what success means and when it should happen and all of those things, the more you free yourself up to, um, to just do the work and enjoy <laughs> making stuff, which is uh, a better headspace to be in generally. And, and kind of like, as soon as you stop all that weird self-doubt and comparison and, um, and all of that stuff, then weirdly, at least I've found, I feel like more opportunities come your way. It's very bizarre. I'm so glad you flipped this question from self-belief to self-doubt. You mentioned Ira's videos. Mm -hmm. What else are you doing now, though, when that self-doubt starts creeping in? Is, is there anything you do to help? I exercise. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, honestly, exercise really helps a lot. Talking it out with people really helps a lot. And then I think the other thing that I'm still battling is just being okay with it. And understanding it's part of the process, but I don't have any like really good answer for that yet because I think that's just an ongoing battle. But I will say that exercise changes a lot of that. And that's something that I sometimes I'll go in patterns where I'll be working so much I'll forget that I'm supposed to be exercising. And then I'll have like there'll be a time period where that self-doubt will feel crippling and I'll go like, oh, there's nothing I can do. Oh, this sucks. Like, you know, I have all the bad thoughts uh, about uh, you know, that any person that does creative work does and then i'll start exercising and i'll go like oh yeah i just need to be exercising all the time and being healthy and like trying to remember that you're supposed to do all that stuff and then it's not so bad perspective i mean like that's the other thing like you have to get perspective i mean like that's the other thing like what i'm sounding so self-serious like talking about all this nonsense about like structure and all these things and it's like really you just have to get perspective at how lucky any of us are to do creative work and then you have to go oh all of this stuff that I am worried about is not meaningful in the grander scheme of things. And just like, take a, take a breath, take a breather, relax. It'll all be okay. You know, it's that, that, that but that's a hard thing to do all the time. Looking back at yourself when you're watching Apocalypse Now and Momentum, did you mm -hmm. ever think you'd be an Emmy nominated person 15 years later? Oh, I think I would have been disappointed if, with that. If I had, if I had, uh, <laughs> at that point, I, I think I, 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 cause I still believed at that point in this idea of like, okay, I'm going to get out of school. I'm going to go make a movie. It'll be at Sundance the next year. Uh, I still believed in that kind of like, I need to make all these things by the time I'm 28 or 30. So yeah, I think I actually would have been annoyed with myself if, if I had known that was where I was going. But I also think you need, it's, you sort of need to have that delusional at least at the beginning, you need to have that delusional belief before the self-doubt starts kicking in once you're actually making stuff. Yeah, I'm always intrigued by that naive optimism. And we have a lot of young listeners and they reach out to me asking me about that as well. And any other mm -hmm. thoughts around that, just the importance of, of thinking that you're invincible at that age and can continue to push through? Yeah, I mean, I think the main thing is just doing, I've had so many friends that that have have had that optimism and then the self-doubt started creeping in and then they stopped doing work as they stopped working as a result of that, instead of taking that as like, Oh, that just means I need to do more work. 
And I think you kind of have there, there's that split in the road where you can, you can let the reality collide with your naivete and it can push you to stop working or to work more. And that choice kind of dictates, you know, where you go from there. That doesn't, it doesn't, there's no, it's not cut or dry. There's no cut or dry answers for how you do anything in this world or especially in this business. But certainly um, that's a choice that affects how your skills develop and what happens as a result of that. I think, you know, that that's the choice that everyone has to make. You mentioned chef's table was hard to sell. Why was that? Uh, <laughs> at, the time, at the time, well, okay. So there's a couple reasons. Like number one, we were very young. I mean, we were 28 and 29 and we were asking for like a lot of money to go make a show about chefs. So that's number one. But, uh, there weren't really, there weren't really documentary TV shows in this fashion. Um, and certainly there was not a food show that didn't have a host that was on American TV. There was some, you know, there were kind of iconic programs that were on PBS kind of about the great chefs. There were some European shows back in the day that kind of did that. But I think the question really from the TV industry was always like, well, I mean, who's the host of this? You know? <laughs> uh, so I, I, I remember at, uh, you know, eight agencies kind of said like, Oh, you'll never be able to sell it because there's no host. Um, and they had wanted David, you know, after Jiro to, to make something that was, you know, host driven more like, like what's the catfish of Jiro James of sushi? Like, how can we put you on camera as the guy filming the great chef or, you know, like what are the other kind of ideas like that? Just because that was the model for like what a show like this looked like. Uh, and so we were trying to break a lot of the rules of food TV and documentary TV. But of course, we weren't really setting out going like, screw the rules. We're going to write our own. We were just going like, this show would be cool to make. <laughs> and we don't really want to make the other show. Uh, but that just meant, meant, you know, it was an uphill battle. And then, you know, we were lucky because Netflix started doing documentary programming. And um, we were in the door pretty early there. and. David's film, Jirudum Sushi, had done super well on Netflix early on. And so in a bizarre way, there was a proof of concept for the crazy idea that we were pitching. Whereas if you went to another network, like you went to a normal television network and went, here's our feature film that was released theatrically that David made. Like, isn't that a great proof of concept for our hour-long television food show? They would have laughed you out the door. Like, sorry, that's not connected. But on Netflix, where all the stuff kind of lived together, the fact that audiences loved Jiro actually meant, oh, maybe there's an audience for something like this kind of crazy idea. And so also being international in the way that it was meant we could say, we're going to get the best chefs from all over the world or, you know, the most interesting chefs from all over the world or, you know, whatever, whatever it may be. And we can, you know, we're not limited to just traveling around the United States doing that. So uh, I think it's all of those factors that, that went into that. You mentioned getting the best chefs in the world. What's the selection criteria like for you guys? Everyone always asks that. I know. Sorry. My, my wife is like, you have to ask Brian this. I have to know. <laughs> so, so I'm sorry. I'm kind of, I, I'm in the middle of it right now. The selection criteria is we're really looking for interesting personal journeys and things that we think will resonate with people. Um, and 
we've been really trying, you know, at the beginning of the show, it, it was very much like, who are the best chefs in the world, according to the metrics that, you know, Michelin or whatever lists there were uh, that had a lot of dominance in that space. And, you know, because we were still learning about the food universe. Um, and then I think as the show has changed and evolved over time, we've become really interested in trying to find uh, stories from different parts of the food world, whether it be, you know, a Korean, a Buddhist Korean nun in, uh, you know, in the mountains of South Korea to Asma Khan, an, you know, a, a British Indian chef who is, you know, untrained, started cooking supper clubs out of her own uh, flat in London as a way to connect to her roots and then launched her own restaurant and employed a staff of all uh, second daughters because she herself was a second daughter, um, which in India comes with, you know, a different kind of connotation. So the, the types of stories that we become drawn to, I think that the universal components of overcoming adversity and all of those kind of themes are the same as we've always been interested in, but we've been trying to find, you know, uh, a, a more, a, a range of life experiences um, that, that represent the, the food world as a whole better. Um, so that, that's kind of the way that it's evolved over time. And, and really it's just kind of us doing a lot of research, talking to a lot of friends in the food universe um, and kind of trusting our storytelling guts um, in, in that process. Who's the most talented chef you've seen? The most talented chef I've seen. I mean, they're all talented in different ways. Uh, so it really depends because, you know, for example, someone who is the best at make, at making handmade pasta uh, because they've spent 15 years studying it. That's a different skill set than the person who can conceptualize a, like a molecular gastronomy dish. And that's a different, and that's then a different skill set to someone who can make you feel at home by inviting you into the restaurant and the hospitality is so amazing and the food reminds you of the, your mom's food. So there's no, I don't think there's one, any metric for like what the best chef is or the, uh, like, I, I think that kind of idea is, you know, there's so many different kinds of chefs that there's no best, but yeah, I think uh, we've done a lot of people who have really interesting skill sets from Francis Mullman, who's spent, you know, decades learning how to cook with fire and all of its different forms to someone like Anna Roche in Slovenia, who's a totally self-taught cook who took a, you know, started from a political background and then had to build her culinary school set and has this really interesting way of coming up with new dishes that is super creative and, and out of left field because it doesn't follow the traditional like French model of how ingredients mix together to... Grant Ackett's, who is trained in, you know, the French Laundry and some of the most um, progressive fine dining restaurants. And so his level of technical skill and his ability to kind of create whimsy is really amazing. So, you know, each one of the people that we've done have 
have kind of mastery of certain skill sets, but there's not one person that I would say is just the best chef. It's incredible what humans are capable of, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, and I think just the variety of skills that we're talking about there, people can really kind of, as long as they're willing to devote the time to it, they can really do all sorts of amazing things. It was just so interesting for me right there to hear your thought process and almost be inside your mind thinking through about unbelievable performances. Has there been a single best bite of food you've ever had? Best bite of food? Um, no, I, here's the, here's the th- I think the thing about food is it's so tied up in memory that a lot of times I've thought that I've had the best bite of food and then I'll go back and try to recreate it and and I'll go like, oh, it doesn't live <laughs> up to the expectations. So um no, I try I try to not I try to not uh think of anything that way. One thing I'm so fascinated is how you're able to create great work across such vastly different domains. And then even in those domains, what you're able to do. So so if you're at a dinner party and someone asks what you do, how do you articulate that? Hmm. Generally, don't like talking about work at a dinner party. So I, I don't know. Uh, I think that what all of us are trying to do here is to take documentary into a different level in terms of making it like a film going experience. So that means from a story and narrative standpoint, taking people into a different place, adding a level of clarity and precision that isn't normally in the documentary world and then also trying to create a, an aesthetic and a world that feels like it really brings people in and i think that all of the things that we try to do in terms of finding universal um, themes in our work in terms of the way that we shoot our documentary stuff all, all of those things are all driving towards that same, that same goal of how can we elevate craft and form and and try to make something cool out of that so that's that's where like genre doesn't really matter as much because how you make a true crime documentary interesting or a social issue documentary interesting or a food show interesting for us is the same because it's about character it's about stories being clear and uh, compelling to an audience and it's about you know, creating a, a visual world that people want to live in. So I, I think it's really, it's really about storytelling and, and kind of um, inviting people in. That is the thing that, that unifies all of our work. Are you often pulling from things completely outside of TV and movies? Are, are there any things in nature that just hit you and all of a sudden you, you think of a concept in a different way? I've never had that happen, but every time I read about that happening to someone, I'm like, wow, that seems very cool. Uh, and I wonder if they're telling the truth. Uh, no, that's never, that's never happened to me. I, I, has that happened to you? Not really. No, I, I've read about it. So I, I was wondering, <laughs> I mean, I'm just trying to think about like conceptually how much I enjoy what you produce. Oh, so I'm just trying to even tap into that more and figure out what are you doing differently? Because seeing through the lens uh, of your vision and your eyes, it's, I mean, it's very interesting to me. So I don't know if there's other things that, that you've done or, or just seen throughout the years that have helped you create this type of work. I don't know. I, I think so much of it is also surrounding yourself with amazing people. Like Chef's Table is so, uh, there's so many people that work on that show that all bring their 
passion to it. And so I feel like it's much more about uh, everyone being really invested and passionate. And that sort of goes back to like what we were talking about. We're talking about what makes a good partner. Uh, Jason's sitting across from me right now. And I feel, I always feel like we want stuff to be amazing. Both of us do. And I feel like if you, if you have a team of people that all want that same thing, then that's really what can help stuff stand apart from other things. Because weirdly, while that seems like a basic idea, there's still not a lot of work that's made with everyone pushing in the same direction. Um, so I, I think that's that's probably the key. Something you've mentioned a few times is reading up on Pixar. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. yeah. I would just love for you to hit yeah. on that a little bit. <laughs> what about it? Well, I mean, it's something that in this our conversation you've brought up multiple times so what specifically yeah, right in the about middle that of, oh okay i think it's because i'm like um it's it's my thing of the moment where i'm really into it um i think the collaborative component to it i i i feel is really i really that's the my favorite part of making stuff um and they've done such a good job of creating an environment where everyone is empowered to be a part of the larger team. Um, and, and it's, you know, it makes sense when you're making an animated movie where you, people are working for five years making water realistic. You know what I mean? That's some people's jobs. And those people are just as important to the final product as, uh, anyone else. It, it makes sense that you need to foster that kind of, um, collaborative environment. So, just the challenge and the idea of trying to do something like that with a with documentary that doesn't that doesn't have 600 people all working for five years on the same thing that might have 20 people intersecting over the course of six months that that idea is just really cool and then i think i also really just the process that we've always made uh stuff with really felt when we read about the Pixar methodology for how they give notes, how they collaborate together to challenge ideas to make things better. It felt very much like the way that we had been doing things on chef's table, but just explained in a different language. So that, that was something that was cool to me because I think it shows, and that's something that's always cool when you see people who are doing totally different things but whose work you admire, and then you realize, oh, their process is, well, different and phrased differently. The kind of core fundamentals of it are relatively similar. So I think that is really what draws me to them and why I've been kind of driving everyone in the office crazy talking about uh, the Pixar methodology. <laughs> well, you have my, my interest peak now. Is this a specific book you're mentioning? Oh, yeah. Well, it's Ed Camel wrote a book called Creativity, Inc., Yep. Um, that is amazing. Just, just, uh, just kind of a behind the scenes of how, of, of, of his time there. Um, and then that, that's kind of like a good jumping off point to then dive into other interviews and all sorts of things. So, uh, yeah, that, that, that was for me, the thing that, um, that got me really interested in how they work over there. I had a feeling you were mentioning that. That's one of my favorite books. <laughs> yeah. This has been a, a truly fascinating conversation. I just have two quick little things I need to hit on. Like we were mentioned before cool. the call. Uh, I'm in New York area for the next month. 
where should I check out? What restaurant do I need to hit up? Okay, so you, sh- you should go to Uncle Boone's um, in the Lower East Side. It's a Thai restaurant that was opened by two uh, by a couple, and um, it is awesome. Strongly recommend that. I would go to Lilia or Missy, which are Missy Robbins, two Italian restaurants in Brooklyn that she runs with her partner Sean Feeney. Those are some of my favorite places. Um, and then let's see, where else would I go? You could get a drink at the Aviary, which is Grant Atkins's um, cocktail bar. They have a branch at the Manor Oriental uptown there. I really like getting, and then for me, like my, this is going to sound strange. There's two kind of little secret places that I love. Number one is at Di Paolo's Italian Foods, which is an amazing uh, grocery store for Italian food uh, in Chinatown and Little Italy, I guess, Chinatown area. Uh, they do a porchetta sandwich maybe 1 or 2 p.m. every day. That's awesome. Uh, and it's not really on menu. You kind of ask for it and they make it and grab a roll and they'll put some porchetta on it for you. And that's awesome. And then I also really, really love, there's a coffee shop that I'm going to pronounce terribly wrong. I think it's called a Bracco or a, a, a Bracho or something like that uh, on East 7th. In the uh, in the village, East Village, that it's East Seventh and First have, I think, something like that. And they have great coffee and they have amazing olive oil cake. So that's the place that I like to hang out. And there's no computers allowed there either. So you go and you kind of bring a book and hang out. Uh, and it's just a great neighborhood coffee shop, which makes me always miss New York because we don't really have that kind of thing out in LA. You have me so excited. These are awesome recommendations. I cannot wait to check them out. Final thing. Okay, so I'm obsessed with art heists. And and hmm. tell me, shoot holes through this idea. I would love seeing a documentary following the world's best art thief and understanding the entire process of him planning, executing, and then finally capturing this piece of art. Is this a terrible idea? Would anyone ever produce this? No, that's not a terrible idea. It's actually like... Um, there's an article that I always wanted to make into a doc or a movie called Art of the Steel. So this is one of my buddies named Joshua Bierman, who also, he's kind of a genius story finder. And he's a great writer. He found the Argo, the story that became Argo, the movie, and then a number of other amazing things. If you haven't read his stuff, you should read all of it. But he wrote an article called Art of the Steel on the tale of the world's most ingenious thief. Um, and I believe that the story... Uh, it opens with this art thief parachuting out of a plane onto a museum and onto the top of a museum or a a castle where this diamond is held uh, that he is going to rob. And I've always thought that would be a great, that would be a great hybrid documentary scripted project. Um, Because supposedly he also videotaped all of his stakeouts before he did it. So you're not, uh, you're not wrong at all. I think the problem is just getting access to someone who is actually an art thief in, <laughs> in the process of them doing anything. I think that's where you, that's where it gets tricky. Uh, but yeah, you should check that article out. I think you'll like it. One little hold up. Yeah. Finding that art thief. You just now have wasted my entire afternoon. Cause all I'm going to be doing is checking out this article. But Brian, I, I want to send the listeners to you. Obviously, we've mentioned Chef's Table, Amanda Knox documentary, both on Netflix. Where else can they check you out? What do you want them to be aware of? 
Yeah, we just had a new show come out called Street Food that David and I created together uh, that is also on Netflix. And then um, we are in the midst of working on a bunch of new stuff for the new Walt Disney Company platform, Disney Plus. So people can check out our work there in the coming months. And um, on Netflix, we're working on more Chef's Table uh, right now. So all of those places are great. And then I'm at Brian McGee, E-R-I-M-C-G-I, on Twitter and Instagram if you want to follow grotesque amounts of eating. Well, we love that. I will certainly have all that linked up in the show notes. Brian, I cannot thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Of course. Thank you, Sean. Take care. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode. Making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand, they're MCT Co. And they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high-quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great-tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor. Head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. If you guys enjoyed the smooth sounds of today's episode, then you can thank Brian Lapries, our sound engineer. And if you enjoy the intro song, check out Justin Great, the man behind it. I can't thank you guys enough for listening. Looking forward to you tuning in next time. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you got you? Thank you.